All right. Well, again, we are in the beginnings of our Easter series. There it is. Every knee shall bow. Um, that, like that's a pretty epic graphic, right? And that's because the story of Easter is pretty epic. Now I know like a lot of like floral designs go with spring and stuff like that. But the reality is like Easter, this story is, is it's about life but it's a different version than we might um, find at Rifle Paper Company, y'all. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Even though I do love some Rifle Paper Company, you know? All right. So let me start by going straight to the passage as we begin our message on Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry. And uh, this is going to be out of uh, the book of John chapter 12. And so here's what I'd love for you to do. If you already have your Bibles open, awesome. Otherwise, would you not open them just yet? We're gonna read it over again. But right now what I'd love for everyone to do is just close your eyes as I read this passage over you. And what I want you to do as I'm doing this is simply reflect. For most of you, this is familiar territory. But what I want you to do is just reflect. And we're going to read it over again where I'm going to ask you all to pop open your Bibles. But this is John chapter 12, starting in verse 15. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You can open your eyes. We refer to this now as Palm Sunday or specifically this moment as the triumphal entry. And you see, in this moment, it ushers in us into what we now refer to also as Holy Week, right? It starts with Palm Sunday, uh, moves on towards Good Friday, which is the day of Jesus' crucifixion. And then it works its way to Easter Sunday when we look and remember that Jesus has risen, that the tomb is empty, and that that's good news. Now, there are very few spoilers, even in our post-Christian culture, about Easter, right? Like, probably most people that are in our culture would understand that the Bible at least says that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. Like that's, that's probably fairly common knowledge. There's not a whole lot of like needing for Marvel level spoil alerts, right? Which by the way, I'm going to be gone and not able to watch Doctor Strange. So none of you better ruin Doctor Strange for me while I'm gone. It's going to be like three weeks until I get to find out what happens in that movie. So spoil alerts. Okay. So don't do that to me, y'all. If I get that text, my rest will come to an end very fast. (laughs) Now, in the reality, though, of this story, the story of Holy Week, the story of Easter, what happens so easily is that because it's repetitive, it's like, oh, yeah, Jesus always dies on the cross and raised from the grave. Like, isn't that crazy that we believe that? That doesn't happen on a normal basis, right? See, in this reality, it's so common for us to forget the awe, the wonder, the beauty, the brutality that unfolded in this week that we look back and reflect on each Easter. And honestly, around here every single week. See, we can think of these moments as either like some, some sort of fairy tale uh, where they didn't actually like, it's not actually like historical events, but there's a good moral to the story. Or they are historical facts, but it doesn't really have any bearing on like your, your life or my life today, right? 
So we gather together tonight and we'll do it again on Good Friday and again on Easter Sunday. And each of those times that we're gonna do this year is we're gonna do something a little bit different a little bit unique. We're going to reflect by putting on different sets of lenses or perspectives and reflecting what different spectators or participants in the story might have experienced. Now, as a church, we believe that the scriptures were guided by the Holy Spirit into existence and therefore are perfect in form. So as we take some creative reflection into these stories, know that I'm going to do my best to point out where this is something that we see explicitly in the scriptures and where it's something that there is just some creative reflection that's going, that's going and um, happening in that, all right? And the hope is that in doing so, what this is going to allow us and afford us to do is to be able to meditate on this story in a different way, where we are reflecting over this story in a way that we may not have engaged or thought of in the past, in a way that is more first person instead of more third person and kind of zoomed out. Because you see, there is such beauty of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. There's such beauty at what Jesus accomplished at the empty tomb. And I'm excited for us as a community over the course of this week to have an opportunity to reflect on that, to be in awe of that. And if, you, if you're here and you don't know or follow Jesus, that this would be an opportunity for you to hear about him and hear his story and hear what, what we, at least in this community, believe he has done and see what the Holy Spirit has for you in the midst of that. Now, we've been journeying as a church over the last few months, though, through the book of Philippians, right? And it's been so good. In fact, there was this passage that as we were praying over which direction to take an Easter series, that came to mind. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And when you think about it, this is actually an Easter passage. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Good Friday. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on, on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the events of Holy Week brought about this incredible reality that the kingdom of God is being ushered into existence, that the name of Jesus is being glorified and exalted above all names, and that there will be a day, it hasn't happened yet, but a day when every knee will bow. But notice how it delineates three different perspectives, three different groupings. Those who are above the earth or in the heavens, those who are on the earth, and those who are under the earth. Now, that's fascinating. Those are three very different perspectives, right? How the, um, what it's getting at is the way that the angels might view, view something, the way that humans would view it, and the ways that the enemy, Satan, and de the demons uh, would observe a moment. But yet, what it's getting at here is that in this moment, at this moment, when Jesus' name is highly exalted, every knee will bow. All three perspectives will collapse into the same action at the same moment, albeit with very different experiences, I'm sure. So what we wanted to do was look at those three different perspectives and how they might have perceived the events of Holy Week. Now, for some, we will have a little bit more clarity from the scriptures than others. So let's go back to the passage in John chapter 12 and read this passage. John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, 
the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey. He sat on it, just as is, is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So how must have heaven viewed this moment? Think about it. The messengers of heaven, the angels, who have stood in wait for so long. I mean, they were with God at the beginning of all of these stories, Right? And 30 years ago from that moment, something significant happened in heaven. The son of God departed the kingdom to come into human form. Have you ever thought about what that must've been like for the angels? The one that they worship, one of the, the members of the Godhead of the Trinity came into human form. How does time work in heaven? No clue. Anybody that says they know it perfectly? I don't know. I'm not that person. But what we do know is that the angels are not God, which means two things. One, they're not omnipresent. In other words, they're not present at all times in all times like God is. So that's a big deal. Second thing is they're not omniscient. They aren't fully aware of all things that are happening at all times in all times. What that means is that God actively reveals things to them by either sending them places or telling them things. They are, in other words, witnesses of what happens and they carry messages that they are instructed to by God. So when 30 years ago, the son of God left the throne room of the kingdom to venture into the womb of a teenage girl in a backwards part of a forgotten colony, they had to be curious, right? More than curious, perplexed. God, what are you up to? When we were journeying, I think it was in the book of Colossians, it says things into which angels long to look. The, the image is that they're stretching out their necks because they're so curious, they're fascinated. What is happening? Like you might assume that the angels are in on everything that's going to happen. Like they know how the story unfolds perfectly. They don't, they're perplexed. They have known all along a few things though. Ever since sinful man was, uh, was removed from the garden, two angels were placed at the entrance to the garden to stop broken, fallen man from re-entering into God's presence on their own terms. See, for years that turned into decades, turned into centuries, turned into millennia, from that moment they have waited. How? would God possibly redeem and restore all things back to himself? I mean, imagine decade after decade and century after century. Okay, like he promised the woman there would be a snake crusher from her line. What does that mean? What does that look like? How is that gonna play out? And for sure, the son of God taking on flesh as an infant is not exactly what any of them would have had in mind. But now... Now it's starting to make sense, right? In this moment, when he rides into Jerusalem, into the city of David, riding on a steed as a conquering king. In the book of John, he, he gives us a window into this prophecy that comes from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine says it this way. Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he 
humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, the angels, they don't know everything, but they hear prophecies that are being revealed. So they would have been aware of that. And see, even right there, a conquering king, just as it was explained so many years ago. So it's been, it's been a few decades for them. It's been a little over 30 years for them since they last had the son of God in their direct presence in the kingdom, but it's all becoming worth it. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, all I could say is I could imagine that it might feel a little bit distant to have one of the, one, one of the members of the Godhead absent from the kingdom. But the kingdom is coming now on earth as it is in heaven. It's going to be epic. The only question that still remains is this. How will this conquering king actually conquer? Now let's think of it from our perspective down here on earth. Now for us humans, how would we have witnessed this moment? What were we thinking? What would we have been feeling Now, every single human being is unique and processes his events differently. But we do get a window into three different groups of humans in this particular passage. You have the large group who is assembled. They're the people with the palm branches. You have Jesus' disciples, his close group, his posse, who's been journeying with him over the last three years. And then you have the chief priests in this passage. And each give us a window into the human condition. Now, Earlier on in this week, Jesus had went and visited his friend Lazarus. You might've heard of him before. Dude was dead. Jesus raised him from the grave. Well, it turns out that that was not normal in the ancient world, just as it is not normal in our world. And in fact, it was starting a movement. It was getting the word out about Jesus and his ministry in some major, major ways. Word was spreading quick. Now, I personally think that doctors are pretty impressive. I think the idea that they can diagnose a thing and then help bring about remedy to the thing, that's, that's pretty cool. I, I can't do that. Like that. There's a reason why it takes so many years of school, right? But what about the one who not only can heal what is sick, but he can resurrect what is dead? Now that's like a, okay, all ears, right? You're gonna listen to this guy. See, word was getting around. And we see that in John 12, verse nine. So right before where we started tonight, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, but get this, it wasn't just because they heard about Jesus and how awesome his teaching was and all all of that. Instead, look, it says specifically, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So they were transfixed by this moment wait up. I mean, Jesus, they've probably heard about him for a few years at this point, but Lazarus was dead and now he's alive. And get this, this is how severe this reality was becoming for the chief priests. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. I don't know if you've ever like read that and focused on that. Isn't that crazy? The guy died and he's, and they want to kill him again. I mean, that's kind of mean, right? Because on account of him, Lazarus and his resurrection, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That's fascinating. 
See, these chief priests were not excited at all. They were going to do whatever it took to keep Jesus pushed off to the side. But you know who was pretty excited? The large crowd. It was clear like how excited they were. They were beginning a celebration as he entered into the city with these palm branches. Talk about hype. The large crowd and many of the disciples were hyped. But what was the hype all about? Well, you see the palm branches give us some context. See, palm branches in the ancient world, including in Israel, were symbols of victory. Uh, whether it was in the ancient Greek world with uh, the Olympics and Grecian games, what would oftentimes happen was a victor um, of a competition would bring back palm branches with them after winning their events back into their city state. And by and as they were a ways off and you could see their palm branches, you would celebrate with pride knowing that your guy was the winner. Or it was Caesar. A few centuries after that, uh, whenever Caesar would walk into a new conquered people group, they would have to lay down these palm branches in front of him so that you knew who the victor was. See, palm branches indicated that victory was in hand. Now, have any of you ever supported a losing sports team that all of a sudden started winning? Is anybody? Okay, all right. So, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Okay, I know some of your favorite sports teams, so I can say that. Okay, um, so I grew up as a San Francisco Giants fan. Now, San Francisco Giants, when I was a kid, were terrible. Like, they were terrible. They were so cheap to get tickets to go see. It was one of the easiest things. It was one of the cheapest things to do in the city of San Francisco. Uh, and so I, I grew up loving the San Francisco Giants, however terrible they were. But then as I was growing up, going into high school, into college, they started winning a lot. And I got to see them win a World Series. It was incredible. See, there's something special when, when, when you feel like a loser and all of a sudden your team starts winning. There's something special of that. Like the, uh, the, how disproportionate that is. How, how great the, the, how great, um, the cat, come on, words. Uh, how great the distance was all of a sudden shrinks and you just like, you lose your mind over it. There's something so exciting about that. And boy, did this crowd of losers have something to celebrate. The King, this King, Jesus, the Messiah. I, the rumors going around, it's the Messiah. He is here. And he just rose a guy from the dead. Caesar can't do that. So the hype was on, but it was on, but it's important to realize that it wasn't on because they believed that Jesus was going to come, die on the cross, raise from the grave and um, free humanity from spiritual bondage, right? What was their understanding? That Jesus was going to come, that the King was going to come and conquer Rome, kick them out and institute a new age for Israel. See, they weren't looking for a spiritual victory. The, these, the large crowd was looking for a nationalistic victory, hence the palm branches. And who can blame them? I mean, can you believe it? It's been hundreds of years. It's finally time for us to be freed from the tyranny of other nations. I mean, first it was the Babylonians, then the Persians, the Medes, the Greeks, then the Romans passed around, kicked around across five dynasties 
for 600 years. The object of oppression from one nation to the next, to the next, to the next. But now, get out the palm branches. Get out the palm branches because we are on the winning side. The king is here. He's going to overthrow Rome. It's all going to get better now. But isn't that kind of weird that he's riding in on a donkey? I mean, that's not exactly like what you're, what you're hoping that your king is coming in on, right? It's a little wimpy. Why not? Like you envision like King Arthur coming in on this huge giant steed. Well, maybe that has something to do with that prophecy in Zechariah that they might have learned about and um, whenever they went to synagogue. Now, what about his disciples? What would they have envisioned? Well, some of the disciples were in that exact same camp. They were looking to, for Jesus to overthrow Rome. That's why, they, that's why they hitched their wagon to him. Like they were with him because he was going to overthrow all of this. But it says in verse 16, something interesting. His disciples did not understand these things at first. They were confused as well. But for all of them, the question that would remain is how will this conquering king actually conquer? Now let's think about this from hell's perspective. For the forces of darkness, for Satan and his lackeys, they must have been thinking this is almost too easy. I mean, the last three decades have for sure had major ups and downs on Satan's plan. I mean, all their schemes haven't exactly worked out as planned. At first, he tried by, by killing Jesus when he was just a drooling baby, attempting to have all the male babies slaughtered. But then his family escapes into Egypt. Definitely not ideal to Satan's plan. Now, they didn't know exactly what was going on when this baby all of a sudden arrives back on the scene in Israel, but now he's a boy and he has, he's showing a lot of gifts with his ability to, uh, to know great things about God. But then he keeps growing up, but he doesn't grow up to be a revolutionary. He's not growing up to do a lot of anything. He's building tables, he's building houses. He's an artisan, he's a craftsman. Maybe they don't have to worry about this guy. He's now in his 30s. Life expectancy around these days, not the highest. And then he goes to his cousin and gets baptized. And then it goes downhill. <laughs> because then he starts preaching. <sighs> Could you imagine what the forces of darkness would think of the preaching of Jesus if they were sitting right there? It must've been so repelled. Goodness, light, life, freedom, the kingdom of God, humility, love, sacrifice, won't it just stop? The Satan even tried to throw him off when his mind was warped after 40 days of fasting in the desert and he still couldn't be beaten. Over and over and over again, all of the schemes, all of the traps have all failed. But now, now they must've been thinking, it's time. It's working. He is falling for our trap. What a fool. Doesn't he know how much that the forces of darkness have riled up the dissenting hearts of these religious leaders, preying on their fears and insecurities, their religiosity, their pride, their self-righteousness, stirring up the discontentment and the fear of the political leaders from Rome. 
I mean, if he's going to start an uprising, this guy is doing a terrible job. Demons know a thing or two, right, about starting uprisings. You always live in the shadows. You raise up a base. You say a bunch of inflammatory things to stoke up fears. You get them trained for battle and then you unleash. But his opponents, Jesus' opponents already know him. They fear him. They want to already kill him. And what is he doing? He is walking right into the belly of the beast, right where all of this would go down. I mean, the trap is set. The powerful people of Jerusalem are threatened. Jesus is there. Check, check. The only question for them remains, how will our enemy fail? See, in the moments of Jerusalem, of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, we discover much about both Jesus and about ourselves. We discover a conquering king, but not the king of hype that we often desire. So I'll ask you right now, when you think of Jesus, what are your expectations that you place on him? What are the things that you have molded him into to fit your desires, your wants. Jesus would never make me stop blank. Jesus would always give me blank. Jesus would never want me to feel blank. And see, so easily what we can do is, yeah, he's a conquering king, but he's a conquering king in our own image or of our own design. And I'm for sure guilty of that. Not in necessarily huge ways, but in ways that are personal to me. What about you? And see, that's what is so important that we reflect on because everyone is willing to own Jesus, but a Jesus of their design. I mean, honestly, if you look almost every major religion, world religion at right now has something positive to say about the person of Jesus. The only problem, it's a very different Jesus than the one that we discover in the gospels. It's not the conquering king that Jesus proclaimed he is. And see, so we have the opportunity tonight and throughout this week and honestly, every single day to reflect on that of who is Jesus? Who is this conquering king? Have I made him into being what I want him to be or do I accept him in who he is? See, we want a king that does the things that we think are best, yet Jesus came to do what he knew was necessary on our behalf, no matter the cost. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. And this is just the triumphal entry. This is just where it starts. He is just crossing the threshold into Jerusalem. So here's what I would love for us to do. We're going to take two minutes. And we're going to sit in what will admittedly likely be an awkward silence. And what I'd love to give us the opportunity to do is just a taste of what I would hope for each and every one of us, me included, over this week. That we would be taking intentional moments of silence and solitude to pause with Jesus. And what I would love for you to do, we're going to take two minutes, and I would love for you to reflect on this and ask the Lord, Lord, would you reveal to me any ways that I am tempted to build up a hype for a Jesus that I desire? Would you help me to be excited for the one who is the true conquering king? Would you just go before the Lord for two minutes and then I'll finish up.
as we enter into Holy Week, be reminded that the way of Jesus is, is a path of conquest. Just not the way that you and I might naturally envision. Would you pray with me? Father, how incredible this Holy Week is. This week where we get our minds transfixed on the person of Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who has been given the name that is above every name. And Lord, right now, I know for myself in, in this world that we live in, honestly, it's so easy to oftentimes feel like I'm losing. Like we have, like we have been on the wrong side. We've been on the losing side that, that the way of Jesus is beautiful and compelling, but is it enough to take us through a world that is really hard? But Lord, the moment of the triumphal entry, Jesus walking through into Jerusalem, knowing exactly what the path led toward. There was no surprises for him because he knew what real conquest would look like. It wouldn't be the way I would envision it for him, the way that any of the, the large crowd would have envisioned it for him, the way that his disciples would have envisioned it for him. Maybe even the way the angels would have envisioned it for him but it was the way that you envisioned it for him. So Father, I thank you for your son. I pray that our hearts would be stirred tonight to reflect and continue to reflect in the days and weeks ahead on the beauty of Jesus, the conquering king, the glorious one, the one whose name is above every name. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.